Welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where we read about the perils of pornography so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Joining us to discuss this classic hard-boiled detective story are Amanda Meadows and Jeffrey Golden, co-hosts of the podcast Dirt Cheap. Hi! Hi! Hello! Hello there, dames! <laughs> what brings you to a, a joint like this? <laughs> so right off the bat, I should say that some of you might be doing a little double take at us doing the big sleep, and you're like, I thought that was a good book. I thought you guys do bad books. And first of all, you're not the boss of us, listeners. We'll we'll do what we want. We're independent dames. Um Second of all, um, second of all, I didn't think this book was as good as that it should be on Time's top 100 novels, but we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Um, third of all, as we've just said, Amanda and Jeffrey are co-hosts of the podcast Dirt Cheap, um, and so they've been exploring a, a less classic noir hard-boiled detective story called... That's very generous. That's very generous. <laughs> <laughs> the room. Yeah, it's not quite a hidden gem. It's like a hidden, like, rotten orange that you find, like, behind your fridge. What was that smell? I can't place the smell. You finally found the smell. <laughs> um, yeah, so their podcast, Dirt Cheap, is exploring different um, kind of pulp fiction and well, dirt cheap books that you might um, find at a rummage sale or behind the fridge or at a murder scene. I don't know. Where you... <laughs> it could be a murder weapon. <laughs> I a bad book. <laughs> it's a good, that's a good device. <laughs> um, and so if you, if you haven't been listening to dirt cheap, you sh- it's very fun. Um, and you'll, you'll get to hear other cool, um, Maybe slightly less cool one-liners than Raymond Chandler has at his disposal, but you know, so, some some fun old-timey speeches and you know, disrespectful ways to talk about women and people <laughs> of color and you know everyone, which you'll also you also will find in the Big Sleep. So, so I guess I should say also, and people who have listened to Worst Bestsellers should know by this point probably that I'm not a big fan of mysteries or crime stories or any of this. So I really didn't know anything. Like, I knew that the title of The Big Sleep was a a famous noir um, book and movie, and I, of course, know the name Raymond Chandler, but I hadn't hadn't read anything of his before or seen the movie before. What's what's everyone else's level of familiarity with Raymond Chandler coming into this? Um, I think that I read, I think in college at some point, uh, not that I remember anything that happened more than about two weeks ago, mm-hmm. I, I do think that I read something of his in college, I don't remember what, I do, I, I am, and again, you know, if you're li- you listen to the show regularly, you do know, I am much more into this sort of thing, I did very much enjoy listening to this book, and I I. I think at some point I saw the movie, but it was a very long time ago, and I didn't really remember very much of anything about it, but there were a couple points where I had, like, a very strong correlation of, like, oh, wait, I can see this in my head. I might have seen this at some point. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Like, for me, I feel like a lot of noir things just all kind of run the same in my head. Um, but, like, growing up, I think I really only understood Raymond Chandler as a reference <laughs> from, like, cartoons, like Animaniacs and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then uh, in high school, I took a film class, and we watched, like, all of these movies and I remember at one point watching The Big Sleep I definitely fell asleep during (laughs) I mean you're in a dark classroom you know you got your arms folded on the desk you know what's about to happen absolutely Uh, you know what's going on and so yeah that there's that and then and then Murder in the Glass Room as of recent kind of (laughs) making about noir again but yeah like I I sort of had a relationship with noir as like oh the shit that i have to watch in order to watch the movies i want to watch (laughs) um so i went through a murder mystery phase in uh like high like early high school like middle late middle school early high school so i read uh i read a ton of agatha christie Mm. i thought i had read the big sleep but i i was confusing uh, the Big Sleep. I was confusing Raymond Chandler with Dashiell Hammett. Oh, yeah, uh, so sure. I read a number of Dashiell Hammett books. I read The Maltese Falcon. I read yes. The Thin Man. Uh, but I, I had, so I hadn't, I hadn't actually read The Big Sleep. Um, right. I did, however, uh, write, recently write a uh, 1930s uh, murder mystery game uh, mm-hmm. called Murder in the Alps. Um, so it's a, I'm, I, my day job is I'm a narrative designer for video games. And uh, so I, I was uh, brought into the studio to work on a, a long-running mobile series. I was writing new chapters for it. Um, so I've been sort of, and then between that and Murder in the Classroom and, <laughs> and, and then rereading this, I've sort of yeah, like really plunged, it. plunged back <laughs> into the only, uh, eighth grade years. Oh, man. <laughs> Both of us, this takes us back to like teenage years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I when I, Every time I think about The Big Sleep, I think of Mr. Stanton whispering in my ear because he was like a weird close talker. Yeah. And so I, I associate all noir movies with just like uh, a bunch of like weird old white dudes whispering in your ear telling you about how brilliant what you're watching is. That sounds right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, and, and on Dirt Cheap, you guys were talking about how um, your your first kind of exposure to noir was like through cartoons and like parodies of it. And I think for a lot of people, especially, you know, people who didn't grow up like in the thirties and forties, like people of kind of our general age, I think most people would have that experience because this, yeah, it's such a trope. And so this is so easy to parody. I think this style that it's, it makes total sense that it's been in cartoons and everywhere that you would see, before you might get around to reading this story of, of pornography and murder. <laughs> I also think it's like, it's one of these genres that definitely affected generations before us really strongly mm-hmm. imprinted on them much harder in the same way that like Westerns did. It's, it, it doesn't have, I think as much cachet. It's not like side, like science fiction, like evolves has like evolved over time. And yeah. so it, in a way that like noir, which I think is sort of stuck in a certain in this 1930s, right. sort of frozen in that period. Yeah, not much that... like toxic masculinity itself, it's <laughs> so limiting. Right. That like the noir 
the noir genre like doesn't really transform itself uh, no, in mystery. the same way. No mysteries mystery, and who done it absolutely yes. but but uh, noir continue, is so but, specific. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like like uh yeah, like westerns and such. Yeah, know? and it comes from the same it's the same mythology just right. uh, updated to an urbanized Los Angeles. Right. It's the exact same I, ethos and all of that. Yes, the lone gunman literally. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so I guess in a minute we should get into the plot. But one thing, like, a lot of this obviously is very dated. There's a lot of, you know, casual racism and misogyny. But this sort of, like, anti-police rhetoric that goes through it, I was reading it. I was like, oh, I, like, I can relate to this aspect of it. (laughs) Like, yes, uh, it was so much cooler to hate on cops until, like, the 70s. Yeah. Uh, And I, yeah, that's like one thing I kind of miss was just people just casually talking about how all cops are crooked and don't do their jobs, uh, which is <laughs> continued to be true. Tele- television sort of ruined the, yeah. the that perception of cops because they really just out of the convenience of Hollywood storytelling of just that and the oh, sheer it's... volume of these serial like not serialized just episodic like right it's procedurals. Like we, we need it, uh, you know. It's like oh, it's so easy to write, you know. It's a group of cops. There, it's a it's a murder a week. They solve it, you know, and they're you know, and they're heroes. Um, and it was also a time too in the seventies where you know uh, there was a lot of escalation, tough on crime. You know, the New York City, the, the issues of crime there. You know, rising cri- crime rates. The, the post civil rights kind of uh, reconstruction too mm-hmm. that happens in the seventies where people start kind of trying to do whatever they can to undo what happened in the sixties. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so, so yeah, that's what, but, but, but historically in, uh, America, we have thought of, uh, in media, cops have been portrayed as, uh, boobs at best. Yeah. Yeah, criminals bo- at worst. Yeah, just boobs who abuse their power. Right. That should be fixed. Yes. <laughs> and that's yeah. why you want a Philip, that's why you want a, uh, a Philip Marlowe. Like you want somebody who's actually really good at solving crime. He's a straight shooter and <laughs> yes. to be interested in solving the mystery. <laughs> In, in a really interesting intersection that I didn't think about until right at this moment, um, last night I was watching some murder show. I don't even remember which one. Um, and show. Murder, She Wrote, I hope. <laughs> no, it was a, like a, a documentary of some sort on ID. And they were talking about how, like, the, the family didn't believe what the police had, had said, so they hired a private detective. And it was just a very charming juxtaposition of the narrator saying you know after a thorough investigation the private investigators came to the conclusion that the police's ruling was incorrect and then it cut to the private investigator in question who in the thickest boxen boston accent possible said the police were full of shit (laughs) (laughs) i was so immensely charmed by the whole juxtaposition (laughs) it made me very happy and and does you know, tangentially relate to this as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, like, that's, like, probably the one thing we have in common with that. <laughs> with that <laughs> from Boston. <laughs> I've never met a, a person from Boston that I, like, super vibed with. So <laughs> <Okay>. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm already, like, oh, yeah, he's okay, just going to be can... shouty and racist. It sounds fun. <laughs> um. Yeah, well, so let's let's get into Philip Marlowe, who also hates cops, or at least is suspicious of them. 
And by the way, so like I said, I hadn't read this or watched this, and I knew it was like a famous detective story. I was sort of uh, shook to realize the extent to which the plot of this famous novel revolves around a lending library of porn. Yes, yeah. uh, like a legit like proto circus of books. If you're familiar with that store, yeah, uh, in Los Angeles, yeah, it's like. <laughs> a big store of porn uh, <laughs> that has a back section that is a, a little secretive. You can <laughs> assume that every used bookseller is secretly <laughs> lending porn out. That's yeah. something you could just assume now. Uh, the library perhaps has replaced this underground pornography ring. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Which is pretty funny. Shows yeah. you how uh, mores have changed over time. Yeah, I mean, librarians are continuing to be like <laughs> the only people to trust in the afterscape. <laughs> like, <laughs> they know where all the things are. They know where the porn is, but they also know where like the life giving information is. Launch, they know the launch they code. Know the launch code. <laughs> <laughs> For me, the most relatable character in this book is when Marlo's talking to the non-porn bookseller, and she gives him all these details, and he says, oh, you'd be a good cop, and she is offended and says, well, I should hope not. <laughs> it was amazing. I love that. <laughs> she rules. Um, so let's, uh, let's get into the story a little bit. Yeah, before the porn, we meet Philip Marlowe. Yes, and he has been hired by General Sternwood uh, for reasons to be determined when he shows up at his giant fancy house. Um, and the first person who he meets there is actually, well, after the butler, is Marlo's younger daughter, who I think is in her early 20s. Well, she is described as a minor, which it was upsetting to me. I, I meant to check if the age of consent was 21, if that meant 20, or if that means 17. But she acts like a sexy baby. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a full-on sexy baby. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't really figure out exactly what her age was either. Like, she's either, like, 16 or 26. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> she can't be 26 because definitely she's called a minor. Right. So. What, what was a minor? I guess that yeah, was, we need to know minor, what was California in the 1940s. Right. I'm, I'm going to Google age of consent and feel like a creep. Um, You guys keep talking about the plot and I'll get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and after she, uh, after his strange encounter with her, he does meet General Sternwood in his greenhouse. And Sternwood explains to him that he has hired or is, wants to hire Marlowe to investigate this guy, Geiger, who is attempting to blackmail Sternwood about various members of his family, specifically his daughter, Carmen, who we've just met. Uh, and and uh, adjacent to this, but like stated in passing, but in a foreshadowy way, he also mentions that he is missing his uh, son-in-law, who was married to his other daughter, Vivian, and who has mysteriously disappeared recently. Um, Marla's like, okay, yeah, I can certainly look into this blackmail thing with Geiger. And then on his way out, uh, he does meet the older daughter, Vivian, who asks him if he would also be able to look for her missing husband, uh, whose name is Rusty Regan, because the names in this book are very good. R Rusty Regan, uh, yes. a, a forgotten Archie Comics character. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. 
He was left out. He was Jughead's cousin. He got left out <laughs> in the earlier books. Okay. The oof. the age of consent in California was 10 in 1850. In 1889, it was raised to 14. And then 1897, it went up to 16. And since 1913, it has been 18. So Carmen's got to be like 17. Right. Okay. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but... Yeah, not great. Uh, So Marlo, having having gotten these these uh, instructions from the various uh, folks in the Sternwood household, does make his way to visit Geiger's bookstore, uh, and very quickly figures out that it's a front by going inside and making an elaborate request for a particular rare edition that the woman on the desk is very confused by and gives him like weird, a weird answer to and tells him that Geiger's not there and he won't be there for a while. Um, so while, while he's there, he does see some folks coming in and out with like book sized wrapped parcels. So he manages to take one and, leaves and goes well, and he, st- yeah he, he follows someone with the book and it's a whole like he's he's sleuthing this guy who drops off the book in like a hidden book cache and then he takes the book and this is one of my favorite parts was he picks it up and he looks around and then he thinks to himself nobody yelled at me and that's the end of the chapter <laughs> it's like this is a very relatable mood nobody yelled at me mission accomplished <laughs> <laughs> Um, so he does go to a different bookstore further down the street and asks uh, the woman at the counter there the same nonsense question that he asked at Geiger's store. And she immediately is like, this is a nonsense question. Like, the thing that you're looking for doesn't exist. What are you trying to pull? And he had previously been trying to press her for information about Geiger. And after explaining that he did the same thing at Geiger's store and that he they didn't have the correct answer he kind of earns her trust enough that she at the very least will give him a description of geiger and kind of lets him know that he comes and goes and kind of where and when he might uh encounter him again if he were to wait yeah and and this is the one that i complimented earlier because then marla says oh you'd make a good cop and she says i should hope not and uh, and also giving a a hint of the you know 19 30s 40s language of it all he describes her as looking like an intelligent jewess yeah yeah (laughs) so there's you know you'll have a lot of that kind of thing uh so he also at this point unwraps the book and discovers that the book is indeed uh pornography and that the front the bookstore front is a front for a pornographic lending library that like honestly does feel like very entrepreneurial. Like it does <laughs> feel like, you know, see a need, fill a need. Yeah. Support our small businesses. <laughs> yeah. I'm like very, very much pro the store, even though <laughs> yeah. I don't like the people running it, but I like the store and I like, <laughs> kind of like, uh, kind of like the Cine family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, or does but the <laughs> right. people running it are pretty bad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, so he does eventually see someone who meets Geiger's description entering and leaving the store. And when he does leave, Marlo follows him uh, and heads back towards what he assumes is Geiger's home. And he kind of settled in to do a little stakeout of the house. And he sees another car show up and someone, uh, I think he can even tell that it's a young woman, gets out and goes inside. And then he hears a scream and sees a flash. And in his, the midst of approaching the house to see like, hey, what was the screaming and the flashing? Uh, he hears gunshots and then hears somebody escaping the house after this gun has gone off. So he goes inside and finds that uh, Geiger is dead, having been shot. He is holding a camera and the uh, glass photo plate of the camera is missing, meaning whoever shot him also stole the photographs that he was taking and the subject of the photographs is revealed to be Carmen Sternwood who is very high and like half passed out in the room along with this dead body mm-hmm. passed out and nude and nude yes that part is important yeah <laughs> Um, and yes, and Carmen's really out of it, and she kind of tries to hit on Marlo in a really uncomfortable way, and Marlo's not into it, and he takes her back uh, to the Sternwood house, and then he wants to go, he goes back to Geiger's house to investigate this corpse, but the corpse is gone now also, in addition to the photo previously being gone. Yes, so at this point, Gosh, where are we? Well, at this point, he talks to Bernie Oles, who's the chief investigator of the DA, who is described on the phone, and I love this. He's described as sounding like a man who had slept well and didn't owe too much money. <laughs> Which, again, this is another character who is who his life goals. I one day also would love to sound like someone who has slept well and doesn't owe too much money. Let okay. me uh, can I can I take a moment to compare. Uh, this book with the book we're reading on our podcast, uh, Murder in the Glass Room. Please. Uh, so, so in uh, one of the things that that I do really uh, love about the prose in this book is uh, how it's almost like an exacto knife. The way he he tells you just enough to give you like a pretty clear image, and usually it's a pretty witty. Uh, you know, description, uh, I think, which even holds up today as we're, we're pointing it out now, talking yeah. about how, you know, that that is a, very, that is a funny uh, way to describe a person. And I guess kind of get an image from it. Um, the way Philip Norris describes humans, uh, <laughs> even, even people who he, like, has known his whole life. Yes. He'll describe as, like, his, his mother in the mother figure in the book as big and warm. <laughs> like and that's it and it's like we're we didn't have we had no like we had competing ideas as to what, what like that, that what he actually meant by that until like several chapters later he like fills it in more and it's like oh okay this it was is a completely different person than we <laughs> yeah we, it was a tall you meant a tall person <laughs> as, oh. as yeah um, so weird so like uh so it's it was in that way i think just a pleasure uh <laughs> reading the big sleep and yeah, being like, like oh, oh God, this misogyny and homophobia is <laughs> <laughs> so much better written that I can <laughs> I can enjoy it for what it is while with the with the 
um, with all of the conflict uh, intact, whereas with Murder in the Glass Room, you just say, you want to shout fuck you to every page. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, yeah, and then he'll go on to, like, in, in terms of uh, describe now that's describing people. And then in, in terms of describing, like, rooms and furniture and things, he'll go on forever telling you uh, details that we don't need at all that are completely irrelevant about, uh, like... Yeah, it's like a horse painting in his apartment. It goes on and about on about a, a about a horse painting in his apartment like it, like it was a sword in Game of Thrones. Like, he's, like, telling you the history of the horse painting and, like, why he always wanted a horse painting. It has nothing to do with anything. you think would yeah, factor in later, it never does. Yeah, yeah. it's just another thing. <laughs> So maybe, anyway, the, maybe his yes, dream I, job was to write catalog copy for like uh, IKEA. It is. Yes. It is as though it's written by the Murder in Glassroom was written by two writers, Edwin Rolfe and Lester Fuller, and two entire cl- people. Cl- clearly, <laughs> I think you're right. Clearly, one of them was like ripping off The Big Sleep, and the other one was ripping off a Sears catalog, and like, <laughs> and they combined those their prose like combined together in a horrible humongous. <laughs> Um, so, so anyway, that's this. This is it just reminded me just how how witty he is. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I agree. Like both books are are certainly problematic, but one of them uh, has artful prose, and it's this one, <laughs> exactly. the one we're talking about. Um, it's true. I I did I did genuinely enjoy the act of reading this book, which I don't always do for this podcast. <laughs> uh, so we are at uh, Geiger. Uh, Marlowe drops Carmen off. He returns to Geiger's house. Geiger's body is gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does find a weird book that looks like it's in some sort of code, like a notebook, and he takes right. it with him. Um, he gets the call from the guy at the, from, from whatever, from Bernie Oles, the DA's investigator who has slept well and doesn't know too much money. Yes. And, uh, he informs him that Carmen's chauffeur has been found, um, dead at the pier in his car. And they're not sure if he died by suicide or not, but they're kind of leaning that way. But it could also have been foul play. So then then Marla goes back to Geiger's store again, and he's trying to get to the bottom of this, like, porn lending library ring. And he ends up going to following um, someone to Joe Brody's apartment, who previously Joe Brody was introduced as someone who... Um, previously blackmailed General Sternwood uh, over something to do with Carmen, our sexy baby minor, who's getting herself into all kinds of trouble. And so we've already we already know Joe Brody is kind of a probably a bad dude, um, and now he is somehow involved with this separately. Yes. Um. So he. Sorry, I sure. dropped my <laughs> post-it note with my notes on it. <laughs> Well, then, um, so, then, so General Sternwood has two daughters. Uh, Carmen's the younger one, who's a sexy baby. Vivian is also called Mrs. Regan because she's married to Rusty Regan, who is missing. Um, but Vivian is still around, and so she comes to see Marlowe at his office to say that, oh, now someone is blackmailing us again about the the most recent nude photos of Carmen, which, yeah. again, is, is pointing right back toward Joe Brody. Uh, so Marlo does at this point go back 
uh, to continue his investigation, returns to Geiger's house. And um, there he finds Carmen. And Carmen claims that Joe Brody is the person who killed Geiger. So he assumes that Joe Brody is the person who has the uh, naked pictures of Carmen that were taken the night before from when the can- he found the camera and then it had the empty photo plate. While he's at Geiger's house, uh, Eddie Mars shows up there and he's claiming that he has the right to be there because he's Geiger's landlord. Uh, but Marlo actually knows that he runs a gambling house and that he's like a well-known gentleman criminal in the <laughs> underworld of the city and that he's not, <laughs> he's not Geiger's landlord. Um, but Marlo continues down the Brody path and uh, hunts down Brody and finds him in his apartment uh, which is just, this is also just a charming, I don't know, I liked the scene of him um, in the apartment and the two of them talking. And Marlo uh, ha- has discovered at this point that the notebook that he has taken from Geiger's apartment is his, like, clientele list, his, like, lending library checkout mm-hmm. roster. Yeah. And uses that information to kind of be like, hey, so, like... You clearly are looking to take over this guy's business. I happen to have this list of, you know, his clients. Maybe we can work something out so that everybody is happy because I know that you maybe have a photo that I am looking for. Uh, And if you give me those photos, I'll give you this notebook and I won't tell anyone about you maybe taking over the business that is associated with this notebook that I have. This is sort of some pre-internet data mining. Yes. <laughs> it's like, well, we have this this data to show that you like this type of pornography. Yeah. <laughs> For these customers, we could advertise them with, with more pornography. <laughs> yeah, just not Carmen's revenge porn. We'll take that one back. Uh, <laughs> Marla also here describes Joe Brody and says his voice is the elaborately casual voice of the tough guy in pictures. Pictures have made them all like that, which was, again, this book, it's funny to me because I think of it as, you know, the kind of classic um, kind of quintessential whatever. And again, obviously, I'm very not... um, particularly educated about this but the way that he talks about these noir tropes is that like he's writing as if his own book is already a cliche when to me i had sort of thought that this would be the originator of the cliches which also this i we should have said earlier this book was originally two short stories that came out earlier in the 30s and then marlo like pasted them together to make a novel out of so maybe even he did start the cliches the last time that he wrote the big sleep I think it's more like as again. I'm also not an, an expert, but here's my my understanding is uh, using Spielberg analogies. <laughs> um, it's not like Jaws, the originator of the summer blockbuster. This is like Jurassic Park, like the mm. quintessential summer yeah. blockbuster that came out years after the genre had been established. Yeah, like, that's fair. Because, like, Dashiell Hammett's, like, first books were, like, early 30s. And okay. this, yeah. this, is, this is 39, so... There's also, like, these books come from uh, from his crime fiction. So there were magazines that yes. were, like, 
pumping the stuff out. It was like, you know, like dime store, like they, like you would just go to stores, like in the same way that like you'd buy comp, you know, right, you'd, you'd buy get comic comics books. and magazines and and paperbacks that were about the same shit. Yeah. Right, and so like these things were these, this this stuff was out there. They were it was this was maybe a, a high point, a high watermark for the genre, but it was already well established at this point, as my understanding. Yeah, th- I mean that makes sense, and that's how it's written about. But that that made it feel weirdly fresher to me than I would have expected. That, yeah. that it is also self-referential of the genre. Absolutely. Anyway, anyway that's way, Joe Brody. Uh, so just a, uh, a quick sus, uh, sidebar: Murder in the Classroom is also uh, referential, self-referential. Yes. Um, at one point uh, early in the book, Philip Norris, our hero, who's a bookie. Uh, goes on a, a monologue about how he would be the worst at solving crimes. <laughs> <laughs> capable. Yeah. That, like, everybody and, like, ch- like children would be better at solving crimes than Philip Norris. <laughs> and, wait, is he right? He is worked out because, every time. Because he is, it is a displeasure to uh, see him work. It's genuinely frustrating. <laughs> it is, like, caveman solves crime. <laughs> like, ugh. Crime back. Surprise. <laughs> um, so he's at Joe Purdy's apartment, and while uh, he's having this conversation with him about I'll give you the book, you give me the pictures, Carmen herself shows up and reiterates that Joe is the one who killed uh, Geiger, and she has a gun, and at this point, Marlo is fairly certain that Joe could not have been in the house and was not the person who killed Geiger, and uh, Joe reveals that he and Carmen used to date, but he broke up with her because she was too crazy, and that she's been out for revenge ever since. So he's clearly trying to she's clearly trying to frame him for the murder. Mm-hmm. And after this like elaborate scuffle in which Marlo ends up with like three different guns, <laughs> 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 he like it makes everyone kind of chill out and and asks tries to figure out how. Brody got the photo if he wasn't the one who did the murder, and he got it from he he got it from um, the chauffeur who is the person who actually did the murder, the dead chauffeur that they had discovered earlier. Uh, he had snuck into the house because he was in love with Carmen and killed Geiger, and on his way out with the photo plate in hand, Brody, who had also been staking out the house, there must have been so many people staking out this house that night. It's a a mad, 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 mad world-esque, like, (laughs) large cast of characters running around. (laughs) The bushes are full. <laughs> he um he knocks him over the head and steals uh the glass plate and does not know who it is until he begins to develop it and is like, ah shit, I can get some blackmail for this. Um and as uh throughout at some point during this, after Carmen shows up with the gun, he takes Carmen home and comes back and is having this conversation, and then a woman, um or no, not a woman, a person holding a gun breaks into Brody's apartment and shoots him dead. And the person who did it is the guy who, the other clerk, not the woman behind the counter, that's 
she's also there, but for other reasons. Yeah. Sorry, this is a very bad explanation. This book the woman is behind the counter is also hanging out with Brody because she was going to help him go into business with the new start the new porn business. But the person who has shown up with the gun and shot Brody is um, the young male attendant who was working at the porn lending library as well, who uh, peripherally Marlowe had seen earlier in the story. Yes. Also, it turns out his he is a boy, but his name is Carol. Carol Lundgren. And Marlo gets Carol at gunpoint and makes um, makes Carol chauffeur him back to Geiger's house. They are constantly leaving and going back to Geiger's house. Um, I hope he is keeping track of his mileage. <laughs> but then Marlo, like, plot-splains this wildly homophobic scenario. Um, like, using, you know, using slurs that we will not use on the podcast. But basically that... Geiger was bi and Carol was his lover and that's why Carol wanted revenge like because he uh, loved Geiger um and y- you know you can you can imagine some period typical homophobia I don't need to recreate that for you um mm-hmm. but that's in it and so then um Marlo calls his friend um at the at the DA's office to um talk about Geiger's body and he's kind of playing this cagey game where he doesn't want to give it he's still trying to protect the Sternwas because they're his client, so he's leaving out some key details about the blackmail, but he's telling him the truth about the murders. And um then they have to talk to this other cop who is the the DA Oles guy is maybe a little bit more chill and they have to check this other cop and this it's really convoluted. Like it's, yeah. this, it's very twisty. Um, but Marlo basically, um, tells them some of it. And this other officer says that, well, my father was a friend of general Sternwood, but those daughters are trouble, but we'll kind of look the other way a little bit, just out of friendship to general Sternwood but, you know, you, you go do whatever your private detective work is. Yes. So he um, he goes home and he calls the general and says, like, leaves a message with the butler saying, hey, like, I solved the crime. And also he tells the butler to pass a message on to uh, Vivian that he has the photos and everything's fine. And then immediately his phone starts ringing and he ignores it uh, all night and... The next morning in the newspapers, they've written up the murders, but they've written up and his version of the blackmail that kind of protected the Sternwoods. And uh, he decides that he is going to find dig a little bit more into uh, the, the son-in-law who's missing, Rusty Regan. Mm-hmm. So he goes to the missing person's office and gets this elaborate story that eventually boils down to the fact that Rusty Regan had a crush on Eddie Mars, the gangster's wife. And they maybe had something going on and his missing car was found at the garage for her building. But also like Eddie Mars and his wife were not like really living together and he didn't really care if she slept around with other people. And the reigning wisdom because she hasn't been seen is that the two of them ran off together. Mm -hmm. Um, And her name is Mara Mars, just to throw that out. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so he visits the Sternwoods again, and General Sternwood is like, ah, case closed, and, uh, you know, gives goes to pay him his fee, and, you know, job well done, and Marlowe, meanwhile, pays a visit to Eddie Mars to kind of ask about what's going on, and, and get his 
his feel on all of this and Eddie Mars is like, well, you know, my main issue with the Sternwoods is that Vivian is here fucking all the time and she gambles all the time and I keep lending her money and believe it or not, like, this has become, like, a losing, even though I lend her money and then she loses and I get the money back, I'm still somehow losing money and I want it to stop. Mm -hmm. Uh, So he escorts Vivian out of the... um, out of gambling any, any, yeah it's not really a casino casino but like the underground casino room situation yes and after dealing with vivian uh he then has to deal with her sister who has shown up at his apartment um and naked in his bed like he comes to yes. his apartment and she is just like casually naked in his bed she's got one move one move <laughs> <laughs> Well, she has, I guess she sucks her thumb and then she strips. So two moves. Yeah, there's like two this, moves. To yeah. Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. And, then her, and then her cool line, "You're cute." Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so he he gets rid of Carmen also, and uh, ends up around this time. I think there's been a person who's been following him throughout, mm-hmm. and he finally finds this guy and is like, What's "Your deal." And he's like, okay, well, it turns out that I think that Eddie Mars actually was the one who killed uh, Rusty Regan and that he's slashing his wife away somewhere so that everyone will think they ran off together. And I know the place where uh, she's being held. And gosh, what happens next? Uh, A whole bunch of things happen that are vaguely I'm, I'm realizing that we've been going on for quite a while there's a whole just bunch a of, lot like, of ins and outs like this then harry yeah. is the one who tells him uh this the first half of this information where he can find the second half of the information basically meanwhile mr canino who works for eddie mars shows up and poisons harry um like he's just like here's a drink it's poison and then he dies while marlo seemingly is just in the other room secretly watching like um, and then Marlo, through some other steps, basically, finds, Mo- he finds out where where Mona Mars is, um, and he goes to, he's on his way to her, and he gets two flat tires. He says, quote, fate stage managed the whole thing, which I think is just a way to be like, this is sort of like a lazy plot twist, but like, I got two yeah. flat tires, and it happened to be right outside this garage, and the garage happens to be where um, there's a house and a garage. Like, when I say garage, I mean like a mechanic shop, not like a garage attached to a house. But there's a mechanic shop, garage, and a house, and this is where Mona Mars is, as well as two men who work for Eddie Mars, and they knock out Marlo and tie him up. And he he wakes up, and Mona Mars, the wife, is there, and she explains that she didn't run away with Regan um, because she never she didn't really care about him. She still loves Eddie, but Eddie loves um, Vivian, who is married to Regan, and so she is just sort of hanging out because she wants to help Eddie, and she knows. She knows that people think that she's run away with Regan, and she knows that if she stays out of sight, then it takes suspicion off of Eddie. But then she helps Marlo escape. Yeah, she also tells them that she knows that Eddie did not kill Regan. Um, so a whole bunch of more things happen. <laughs> Marlo eventually goes back to the general, who says, like, hey, like, I didn't hire you to do this, but 
with re- referring to finding Regan, but could you find him anyway? Like, just maybe also in addition? Um, yeah. It was a solid upsell. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you like to upgrade to two murders? Because <laughs> throughout this, people keep telling Marlo that General Sternwood knows his daughters are both kind of um, trash, but he really did like Regan, his son-in-law, and he misses hanging out with his son-in-law, and he just, he really liked his son-in-law, maybe more than he liked either of his daughters. Yeah. Uh, So while he's there, Carmen asks, or maybe not while he's there, at some point Carmen asks him if he will teach her how to shoot. So um, he's like, yeah, sure. I will, and when they get to, like, this private place, this, like, secret area where she, he can teach her how to shoot, she turns the gun on him, but he had already solved the crime and figured out what was going on, so he had filled the gun with blanks. So even though she does start firing on him, it's fine. He's fine. I mean, it's not fine, but... um, (laughs) It's not ideal, but he's not harmed. Yes. And, and then and then it... she has an epileptic fit. She shoots him with five blanks and then has an epileptic fit. Because this book also, by the way, if you were wondering, is it ableist? Yes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes, there's some of that in there. Surprise. Also. Um, so he, he what he has basically figured out and which he explains um, to Vivian is that throughout all this blackmailing, all this blackmailing was happening. Geiger... Um, was killed by the chauffeur, as we already discovered, because the chauffeur was in love with Carmen. Carmen uh, had previously been not in, not necessarily in love with, but like trying to get uh, Rusty Regan to sleep with her in the same way that she has everyone else by just kind of coming on to him a lot. And he rejected her, so she killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, Vivian found out about this, and decided to pay Eddie Mars to help hide the body and cover up the murder, which is why the whole elaborate thing with Mona Mars is kind of in the works as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is what's going on with all of the different parts of the mystery. And Marlo's like, so I solved this and it's great, uh, but I'm not going to tell the police, but you do have to promise that you need to get your sister help for all of her various, various issues. And if you don't, uh, I will absolutely tell the police all of these things that I know. Yeah, he doesn't tell the police. And he also doesn't tell General Sternwood because he doesn't want to break the general's heart. And it's clear that the general, he's very old and sick and it's pretty clear he's going to die soon. So he doesn't want him to die knowing all of this. So he's like, we'll just kind of keep this all on the down low if you'll get Carmen basically institutionalized. Yeah. There, um, there is one thing um, they I was reading about this when they made the movie and they were writing the movie script they came to Marlo and they're like wait the chauffeur Owen who killed him and Chandler's like I don't know and there's just this <laughs> <laughs> he's like I don't know he just um, is not important and so there is technically the one a completely unsolved murder of Owen um, and that's fine who cares <laughs> 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 Not Raymond Chandler. <laughs> um, and it was, I mean, I've said before, um, and I think we've talked about this already, but like, it, it is, it is very convoluted. It was a fun read for me, at least though. Um, obviously, it is 
uh, of its time period in regards to, uh, you know, basically every sexism, racism, homophobia, anything you can think of, but, you know, it, it still, it was good. I liked it. I had fun with it. The language is just delightful. Mm-hmm. It's a, it is a, ta- it is a, a tangled web and that's, I think sort of the supposed to be the fun of these of, of this of the mystery genre yeah, is trying to figure out everybody's relationships and yeah and take yeah taking something that seems like is a complex puzzle uh, and solving it mm-hmm. and and he shows his work and it, you know in that way you know like uh, like a Sherlock Holmes or what have you it's like a play you know you you take pleasure in like being along for a ride in which somebody who is so capable, mm-hmm. you know, is able to uh, parse through the, the, the noise so easily, um, you know, with despite uh, other faults that uh, he may have, mm-hmm. you know, about the character may have, you know, mm-hmm. um, he does this thing very well. And so that's, it's, it's always fun to watch somebody who is very good at solving murders solve murders <laughs> yeah <laughs> some good competency porn yes yeah and that's what this yeah. is yeah. i mean that's that's really yeah. what this and is it's also like i mean underneath that is this like uh, uh sort of subtle comfort to readers especially male readers that yeah like you too can you know through your isolation see through everybody else's lies and deceit and, right. and wrongdoing um, which I think is fun and problematic. Absolutely, but, but it is, but it is like a very, it is a very satisfying thing to read. Yeah, yeah. the he, yeah, definitely like you know all the the problems of the world as uh, typified by you know anything that's non you know what like anything that's like not white man and not cop is like <laughs> it's like fair game in that yes. in that like in that like universe of problems of <laughs> world problems <laughs> the by comparison um you know with with murder in the classroom uh, and i and uh, it is uh, murder in the classroom is hilariously uh, it, it, it is, it's hilariously simple in this regard. Uh, I mean, it's definitely aiming for this level, for the Big Sleep's level of complexity. Um, but it's it would be like comparing uh, Mac OS X with like MS DOS in terms of like, <laughs> feature richness. <laughs> uh, you know, this this the, even if even if I have to, I mean, as I read it, like. I even have trouble like following along at times and have to go back and like re reread things and be like, who is this again? And like, what? Yeah. but like, yeah, it's very much a first draft. Whereas the big sleep was two very complete short stories that have then been sort of blended together. And, and even though it only took him, I think I read like it took him three weeks or two, three months to write the big sleep, but he already had the blueprint. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was I it was a fun a fun little diversion, especially the last book we read was a real stinker. So this was <laughs> this was a nice Yeah. Vacation well, from that. Well, listen, if you want to get back into stinker territory. <laughs> stinker Stinkerton. We are, yeah. We are sniffing big one. Yeah. Yeah, what was was the last book Go Ask Alice? Um at at the time that we're recording this, that was the last one that came out. But the last one that we read was called The Foxhole Court by Nora Sakovich, 
which uh, is a self-published nightmare of a college sports romance question mark oh, oh fascinating romance yeah. mob story i don't know there's a lot going on romance football mob story yeah <laughs> yeah um, it's actually not football. It's the fictional sport of Exe that she made up for the book so that she wouldn't have to learn the rules of real sport. I Incredible. Love I love that. Yeah. yeah. That's yes. wonderful. Um, but anyway, yeah, this, this, I think we, we can all agree was a, uh, a competently written, um, mystery. And if, so if you do want a taste of a less competently written mystery, definitely do listen to, uh, Dirt Cheap and learn more about, uh, Murder in the Glass Room, which, sounds terrible and i'm glad i don't actually have to read that one i can just listen to you guys read it <laughs> we're, yeah, we're, we're reading it week after week i i so in preparation for each chapter because basically the way the podcast works is amanda hasn't read it at all so and yeah, i'm I, coming in new and cold i read the, i read the chapter ahead of time and then i read it to amanda in uh you know and so she get we get her your fresh take on it as i'm reading it to you yes um but consequently, what will happen is I'll end up reading the same chapters twice. So I've actually read Murder in the Glass Room twice over a, a long period of several weeks that we've been recording the podcast, chapter by chapter. So I am intimately familiar with that <laughs> terrible book. Yeah, way too familiar. <laughs> way too familiar. Um, but it is hilarious in its, uh, in its datedness yeah, and in its I incompetency. Love, you know, like Geiger's racket is a, is a true racket. And like in Murder in the Glass Room, like he's a bookie who calls everyone else's things a racket. Yes. It's very funny. <laughs> It was lack of self-awareness is like his like main feature. Yeah, he's, it, it's literally like a, almost like a polar opposite of of uh, Marlowe Marlo in that way. Like whereas Philip Marlowe is like acutely aware of his limitations and like what he's good at and what he's not good right. at. Like Philip, Philip Norris is like unaware that he is bad at everything. And <laughs> it's just Dunning-Kruger all the way through. He applauds yeah. himself regularly. Like I did a really good job with this. And then like the next chapter, he will have screwed it up worse than it was before. <laughs> it's really funny. Yeah, listening to Dirt Chief, I'm like, oh, I understand why people like it when we read really bad books. I, I'm i refreshed with purpose. Like, <laughs> it, it is fun to hear about bad books when you didn't have to read them yourself. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, it's so sweet. Yes. Um. <laughs> but so with that in mind, let's let's do our dramatic readings and give you all a little sense of what reading a, a actually pretty good book is like. Um. And so our first one is from near the beginning, and I will be our our humble narrator, Philip Marlowe, and Kate will be Vivian uh, Sternwood Reagan. I sat down on the edge of a deep, soft chair and looked at Mrs. Regan. She was worth a stare. She was trouble. She was stretched out on a modernistic chase lounge with her slippers off, so I stared at her legs in the sheerest silk stockings. They seemed to be arranged to stare at. They are visible to the knee, and one of them well beyond. The knees were dimpled, not bony and sharp. The calves were beautiful, the ankles long and slim and with enough melodic line for a tone poem. She was tall and rangy and strong-looking. Her head was against an ivory satin cushion. Her hair was black and wiry and parted in the middle, and she had the hot black eyes of the portrait in the hall. She had a good mouth and a good chin. 
There was a sulky droop to her lips, and the lower lip was full. She had a drink. She took a swallow from it and gave me a cool, level stare over the rim of the glass. So you're a private detective. I didn't know they really existed except in books, or else they were greasy little men snooping around hotels. There was nothing in that for me, so I let it drift with the current. She put her glass down on the flat arm of the chase lounge and flashed an emerald and touched her hair. How did you like Dad? I liked him. He liked Rusty. I suppose you know who Rusty is? Uh Uh-huh. Rusty was earthy and vulgar at times, but he was very real, and he was a lot of fun for Dad. Rusty shouldn't have gone off like that. Dad feels very badly about it, although he won't say so. Or did he? He said something about it. You're not much of a gusher, are you, Mr. Marlowe? But he wants to find him, doesn't he? Yes and no. So, so that's Vivian and Marlowe and how we meet, well, how we meet Vivian for the, for the first time. Um, you know, and again, that it does, there is a little bit of catalog copy in that as he's describing the chase lounge, but a lot, <laughs> a lot more about Vivian and her legs and knees. Well, there's also, yeah. as, as uh, Amanda pointed out to me, the the Cheslong is sort of the um, like a symbol for femininity and for like the this type of like effete, rich, sumptuous, like look like uh, excessive femininity. Yes. Yeah, and so the so, opposite of Marlowe. Well, so he's so here, you know, the author is using the description as sort of a way to re-emphasize the character. It's just give us a sense of who the people are that we're talking to by way of their surroundings. Uh where is it dirt cheap again? Yeah, they just getting... go off and it's just like every little piece of furniture is described. It's right. like a it's, it's it's like the equivalent of uh Instead of, like, fishing and catching a fish, it's like using one of those giant nets and catching nothing. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, a very uh, Chandler-esque description. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right, so our next dramatic reading, um, now it's Kate's turn to be Marlo, and I'll be Eddie Mars, and, um, well, we'll meet Eddie Mars. Eddie Mars grinned at me sociably and shook hands and moved his chin at the vault. I'm a pushover for a heist mob here, except for that thing. The local Johns drop in every morning and watch me open it. I have an arrangement with them. You hinted you had something for me? What is it? What's your hurry? Have a drink and sit down. No hurry at all. You and I haven't had anything to talk about but business. You'll have the drink and like it. He mixed a couple and put mine down beside a red leather chair and stood cross-legged against the desk himself, one hand on the side pocket of his midnight blue dinner jacket, thumb inside, and the nail glistening. In dinner clothes, he looked a little harder than in gray flannel, but he still looked like a horseman. We drank and nodded at each other. Ever been here before? During Prohibition. I don't get any kick out of gambling. Not with money. You ought to look in tonight. One of your friends is inside betting the wheels. I hear she's doing pretty well. Vivian Regan? I sipped my drink and took one of his monogram cigarettes. I kind of liked the way you handled that yesterday. You made me sore at the time, but I could see afterwards how right you were. You and I ought to get along. How much do I owe you? For doing what? 
Still careful, eh? I have my pipeline into headquarters or I wouldn't be here. I get them the way they happen, not the way you read them in the papers. How much have you got? You're not talking money? Information was the way I understood it. Information about what? You have a short memory. Regan. Oh, that? I hear you got the information already. I felt I owed you a fee. I'm used to paying for nice treatment. I didn't drive down here to make a touch. I get paid for what I do. Not much by your standards, but I make out. One customer at a time is a good rule. You didn't bump Regan off, did you? No. Did you think I did? I wouldn't put it past you. You're kidding. Sure, I'm kidding. I never saw Regan, but I saw his photo. You haven't gotten the men you haven't got the men for the work. And while we're on that subject, don't send me on any more gun punks with orders. Don't send me any more gun punks with orders. I might get hysterical and blow one down. He looked through his glass at the fire, set it down at the end of the desk, and wiped his lips with a sheer lawn handkerchief. You talk a good game, but I dare say you can break a hundred and ten. You're not really interested in Regan, are you? No, not professionally. I haven't been asked to be. But I know somebody who would like to know where he is. She doesn't give a damn. I mean, her father. Just just a couple of cool guys having a cool guy chat. Yeah. Of course. All right, and then our last dramatic reading, we're turning it over to Amanda and Jeffrey, and you'll never guess, this book does have a part in it where they say the name of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll do, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll do this. This yeah. is uh, yeah, get in that. the very end of, uh, of the big sleep. What did it matter where you lay once you were dead? In a dirty sump or in a marble tower on top of a high hill? You were dead. You were sleeping the big sleep. You were not bothered by things like that. Oil and water were the same as wind and air to you. Slept the big sleep, not caring about the nastiness of how you died or where you fell. Me, I was part of that nastiness now, far more a part of it than Rusty Regan was. But the old man didn't have to be. He could lie quiet in his canopy bed with his bloodless hands folded on the sheet waiting. His heart was a brief, uncertain murmur. His thoughts were as gray as ashes. And in a little while, he too, like Rusty Regan, would be sleeping the big sleep. Yeah, I mean, it gets, I, I mean, it's sort of existential at the end. I mean, the, the, you know, the book, the book comments, as you point out, comments on the genre. And here, I think it's, it's an interesting sort of comment on Mur on like what's the real problem of murder like what's the real problem of murder the difference between desperation and power the difference between um being the the brute labor force being the hired hand and being the 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 clean rich person who gets to you know benefit um from from folks doing the dirty work right. um like we're coming out of the depression and uh it's you know, there's a lot of cynicism about okay. like what people are capable of. Right. Um, and yeah, like rich people like Sternwood are, you know, protected in every way all the way up until the end. And this is like a great example of that. Absolutely. 
and 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 on the I think you could go even even wider too and just be like you know what mur- you know it's like for the murdered it's not a big none of this is a big deal it's like it's, <laughs> it's, over, for it's over for them it's like it's <laughs> over for the problem lie. right we have to deal with the 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 living have to deal with the problems of this of these con- you know the consequences and the ripple effects of all this stuff you yeah know? yeah and accountability <laughs> you know you could evade accountability by dying uh, a right. hero or a lionized you know captive of industry without right. having to about all of the things that you did along the way. That's true. Yeah. There's worse ways to go, I guess. <laughs> um, all right. Well, now it's time for Reader's Advisory, where we will suggest some books or movies to read or watch um, instead of or in addition to The Big Sleep. Which, I, I mean, I think you've heard. We would all say if, if you were interested in this genre or mysteries, like, yeah, it's it's pretty good. Um, uh, for me, I would say if you already don't like mysteries, I wouldn't say like, oh, it's so good, you absolutely have to read it. Um, but it's fine. It's a fine book. It's, it's d- definitely better than the murder in the glass room. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a low bar. Um, so a few mysteries that I would recommend if you haven't already read them that aren't. I don't, I don't pretend to understand the exact distinctions of noir versus hard-boiled detective versus other types oh, of mysteries. Okay, I read about this. I can actually explain it. And it, this is actually hard-boiled and not noir because in noir, everyone, there's like no heroes at all um, versus in hard-boiled. Like we do have Philip Marlowe who sort of still has his moral compass intact, even though he is dealing with sort of shadowy people. So noir right. is... Um, nice. Yeah, noir, yeah. noir is, is meaner than hard-boiled. Well, with all of that in mind, I obviously did not know that or care <laughs> about that when putting together this list. Yeah. Um, and a few things that, a few mysteries that I've enjoyed uh, semi-recently, specifically these are three um, queer young adult mysteries, are uh, Last Seen Leaving by Caleb Rorig, which I do think I recommend it because he also wrote the Werewolf in Riverdale <laughs> book. And you know how I kept saying, like, no, I've read this guy's books before and they're really good, like, this is very out of character. Um <laughs> This is one that I, I liked a lot by him. Um, Riverdale will do that to people. Keep This to Yourself by Tom Ryan uh, was another really interesting one that uh, did actually keep guessing for much longer than a lot of mysteries normally do. Um, and uh, Missing Presumed Dead by Emma Burquist is also, uh, and the, that one is paranormal as well. And you know how I feel about that. Um, I'll say uh, the show Veronica Mars is often described as neo-noir, and even, I mean, when you're talking about Eddie Mars, like, her name Veronica Mars, I don't think it's specifically a tribute to Eddie Mars, but that, you know, kind of style of naming. Um, and the show, uh, if you're a fan, you know that the Hulu return was maybe a little bit controversial, but I still really do like the original series, and there are some... Uh, tie-in books that have come out the first one was called the thousand dollar tan line and again i don't generally like mysteries but i just really like that character veronica mars and kind of the the writing and humor of the show and i thought the books were fine and i think if you actively like reading mysteries you would probably like the book uh even more than i did 
Amanda and Jeffrey, do you guys have anything um, that you'd like to recommend uh, aside from Dirt Cheap, the podcast? Well, you know, this, you know, this, this, I don't know how, like, solvable this mystery was. I mean, but one of the things about mysteries that I like is there's a sort of, like, quasi-interactive element of, like, can you, like, solve the mystery? Like, can you figure out what happened? And... I don't know if this is like if th- this is more like a tangled web gets unwoven kind of mystery as opposed to like clue, you know, like did you were you the reader astute enough right. to pick up on the clues? Right. Though, so I, I would say, as I recall, it's been a while, but I recall that Agatha Christie's books are a little bit more along those lines. Right. So like, and then there were none, um, or Murder on the Orient Express, where it's like if you're if you're paying attention, if you're paying close attention, like you can figure this out. And right. so, so if you're looking for a classic mystery that was maybe more solvable, uh, maybe look at those. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm not even really a mystery reader. I, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like I, I, uh, the most interactive books I read are usually comics. Uh, <laughs> that's because I edit comics for a living. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think um, Agatha Christie is a good is a good choice um, for that reason. You get that classic whodunit, um, as opposed to a thing like The Big Sleep, where it's a bunch of whodunits. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have that list um, and some other ones we didn't mention on the air up on our website, which is worstbestsellers.com. And now we will play um, our favorite game, The Rock Paper Snicked, where Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And Amanda and Jeffrey will decide which most improves the book, um, or they can choose paper, which is to leave the book as is. Okay. Okay, excellent. Great. All right. If uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson was in this book, he would be a new character of Marlowe's charmingly but charming but bumbling assistant uh, who would just follow along, helping out where he could and mostly getting in the way, you know, playing against The Rock's usual type in a way that the audience would find endearing. Uh, and something he says, like, very early on in the story will ping Marlowe that Regan has actually been dead this whole time and that the sisters are responsible. And uh, at the very end, when he's doing his wrap-up, Marlowe will credit him with helping to solve the case, which is really all he's ever wanted. And he'll just be very excited about that turn of events. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, the book would not change very much. Mm-hmm. Good for the rock. Well, yeah. <laughs> If Wolverine were in this book, he would have met Carmen at a bar, and she would have tried her sexy baby act on him. Um, He would have rejected her since she is 17, question mark. Um, But when she tried to kill him in revenge, as is apparently her want, she would discover that he is actually unkillable. So he would end up taking her to get the mental health treatment that she definitely needs much earlier on in the book, which would have cut out a lot of this murder plot of the murder mystery. And so instead, this book would just be about kind of the ins and outs of the pornography lending library and its unmurdered proprietor and clientele. Do you like Amanda? Do you have a? Uh, would, would you like either of those? I'm leaning towards Rock. Well, I, I like I like the idea of him being yeah, kind of like a apple bumbler who has always wanted to solve the mystery. It's really sweet. <laughs> the the um, Rock playing like the Kevin Hart role. Yes. <laughs> right. Because it's interesting to have him play. Because he, I, I don't 
think he would necessarily be a bad uh, Philip no, uh, Philip Marlowe. Philip Marlowe, like it's actually or would... like the Sternwoods, uh, like sexy tennis coach who <laughs> like, know, also knows some things, but he's but you can trust him. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, so you'll pick The Rock, and yeah. I, and uh, I'll pick uh, Wolverine, but only because I'm a, a I'm a big X Men fan. And yeah. so any excuse uh, <laughs> to see the Nick. X-Men in anything, I will take. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> yeah, it's it's so hard to find good Wolverine content. He's, he's such an so underutilized X-Men. <laughs> I know, right? There actually was a Wolverine mystery podcast. Uh, it was... Uh, Wolverine yeah, the Long The Long Night, Night. yeah. Uh, that would actually uh, with, be a good recommendation, I think. We should pop that back up into Reader's Advisory. Oh, yeah, good idea. It is very good. It is. A, yeah, it's fascinating. Although, the one thing about it is that, uh, at least I've only seen the first, uh, listened to the first season, but Wolverine uh, is the subject, but not the main character. And, yeah. uh, you know, for me, part of the pleasure of Wolverine <laughs> is being along for that Wolverine ride. Yes. <laughs> Watching him yeah. mourn over a lady he knew 14 years yeah. ago. Apparently, like, yeah, witty barbs that end in bub. Yeah. <laughs> Enough of that because he wasn't the our, our main character. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but otherwise, is certainly a mystery story starring Wolverine. Yeah. And, or about Wolverine. Yeah, right? it is. So. Yes. And it's recorded pretty cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. The, the, the sound effects and, yeah. and production design is uh, is really great. Is excellent. So, yeah, um, great. Well, then then that's a tie game, and everyone wins, and and we all get to we all get to feel great about ourselves. Yay! Oh, wonderful. We all win. Uh, <laughs> Finally, <laughs> I can mark this up as my first win of twenty twenty one. Uh, and now we will move on to Duarte's Corner, where my um, mischievous cat Duarte will share his opinions about the book. You know, Duarte, I I take your point. I do think that if Marlo had a, a cat on a leash that followed him around to crime scenes, I do think that would be really cool and the cat might sniff out some clues but it might make it a little harder for him to you know do all the lurking in the bushes and stuff that he needs to do it, it might be uncomfortable for his cat sidekick yeah and dangerous too you know and i know i know that you're very brave but you know i would be i would be very concerned about a cat like that going out into the field where all of these people are wielding guns all the time you know <laughs> yeah it just takes one stray bullet so Maybe you're better off staying at home with a podcast. That may that I think that's wise advice. I'll say that uh, our cat, when we our cat uh, Gilly, when we watch TV, uh, she always uh, wants more cat-related content. Yes, she wants to see more cat heroes. There are enough. Our, there's not enough cat representation. Right. Yeah, so no, so no leads. So that may be what your cat is to like we need a strong cat presence in the book you know maybe something safer but but you know yeah. who, how can we bring that cat energy yeah, like vital the, cat energy you know general city. sternwood's prized uh, long-haired persian <laughs> cat, yeah, cat. Right. Or, 
Or, you know, everyone loves a bookstore cat. Why why shouldn't the porn bookstore also have a cat? Oh. Bookstore's cat would be so cool. Oh, the cat has, like, the negatives. Like The cat has the negatives in the And then, like, the cat runs out the room and Philip Marlowe's got to, like, chase a cat. Like, cat has got the evidence. Oh man, uh, that, that sounds great. Now that sounds like the rock version. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the rock and the and the talking porn cat. Yeah, oh, the cat, this cat. Yeah, that's great. I, I added that. That's no good. I like it. I like it. Yeah, well, and the and the cat would also have like a very you know film noir style style voiceover. I think that would be important. Yes, um. absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, Dwardy, thanks for that feedback. I we will send it to Philip Marlowe's ghost and um, or Raymond Chandler's ghost. I guess Marlowe's not a real person, so he doesn't have a ghost, as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thanks, Dwardy. Um, do any humans have any closing thoughts? Um, just to to thank you guys for for coming on the show uh for taking some time to to read this book with us uh it was great it was a lot of fun thank you it was it was a truly a pleasure thank you for uh for not asking us to read a terrible book we have we 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 enjoy reading this terrible book that we've been reading but it's nice to have a refresher to remind ourselves that like there are like competent versions of this type of it's true uh, yeah it's nice to read the book that launched a million shitty carbon copies All right. Well, yes, I will. I will echo Kate. Thank you all for joining us. Um, and if any listeners want to find us on the internet, we are on all the social medias, Facebook and Instagram as worst bestsellers on Twitter. We are worst bestseller with no S because the, um, the S was drowned along with the chauffeur and we really don't know who did it or what became of it, but it seems like it's unimportant because it still works. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you can also find links to all of our stuff on our website, which is worstbestsellers.com. Uh, you can subscribe to us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Amazon, all the podcast places. You know where they are. You're using one to listen to this right now. Uh, if you do subscribe to us, please take a moment to rate and review. When you rate and review, it moves us up on the charts and makes it easier for new people to find us. And if you don't rate and review, we will release those pictures. You know the ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, a good, that's a good strategy for getting... <laughs> Maybe we should think about yeah. bribing our yeah. audience. More. Yeah, I really should do that. <laughs> you I mean, you, also... you might end up getting a private detective after you, so it's Maybe a mixed bag strategy. But. Uh, the crime extortion for clicks. You know, though, podcasts, I feel like we should be, uh, we should all be marketing ourselves directly to the private detective demographic because they're in their cars a lot, like, you know, tailing and driving back and forth to Geiger's house and back. Like, they could go through a lot of podcasts. That's plus, a really good point. Plus, in these days, they're hosting a podcast. They're hosting their own podcast. <laughs> trying to solve uh, mysteries as independent uh, journalists. So, oh, yeah. But they're from the ecosystem already. They know how to rate and review. Yeah. So, so. Anyway. If people you want to find also... you guys... Oh, sorry, Kate. What are you trying to tell people? Or Patreon. Uh, you can also find us 
episodes on Patreon at patreon.com slash bestsellers. Patreon is a service where you provide a small monthly recurring donation uh, that goes to us to help us do things like pay for our web hosting and pay our editor. Uh, in return, you get some uh, nice perks that you can find uh, by going to that website. And also, if you're interested, we have merch available by going to worstbestsellers.com and clicking on merch. It's all there. All right, now if people want to find Jeffrey and Amanda and Dirt Cheap on the internet, where might they find that? Uh, yes, you, will, you can find Dirt Cheap on Twitter at Dirt Cheap Pod and on Instagram at Dirt Cheap Books. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Emma. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Amandonium. It's my first name with Onium at the end. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jeffrey Golden. That's G E O. F-F-R-E-Y, Golden. So Jeffrey like Jeffrey Giraffe from Toys R Us. <laughs> Jeffrey Rush. Jeffrey Rush, another great Jeffrey, who spells it the correct way. Um, and yeah, wh- whichever podcast listening platform you're using to listen to this podcast, you can get Dirt Cheap on it, too. So you can, yeah, just, you can search. just pull up that search field and type in Dirt Cheap, baby, while you're listening to this. You'll find Seamless. it. Seamless. <laughs> Jeffrey Golden, I feel like, also would be a good noir detective name. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my true. my mom uh, is an actress, and uh, she was very cognizant of wanting to give me a stage name. She thought it would be a stage name. Um, and so she so uh, and but then it turns out there is another Jeffrey Golden. Yes, he is actually a, a very well known gospel singer. Yes, oh. but he is a beat like he's been on BET several times. And sometimes my email address is close enough to his that I'll get emails that were meant for him. Like you once got like a flight itinerary. Yeah, I'll get like a I'll get like to concerts. Yeah, I'll get like an invite to perform at like a gospel event in Nashville. And and sometimes (laughs) I wonder, like, should I just accept? Should I just say yes? I will be. I'll be there, and then show up and be like, oh, guess what? (laughs) You got the. You got a different Jeffrey Goldman. I'm going to shake this up for you. Well, you show up and then you have to solve a crime there. I mean, that's, yeah. I love, uh, I love the email detective. Yeah, it also <laughs> a great setting for a mystery. Absolutely. Um, all right. Well, it's been lovely chatting with you. Thank you again. Um, we on Worst of the Sellers will be back in two weeks with the Vanishings, which is book one in the Left Behind Kids series. Oh, so... <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Another mystery. Where did all the godly people go? We'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> godly kids. The god kids. <laughs> <laughs> They're here. They've been left behind. But we'll talk more about that in two weeks. So um, thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.